It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Chris? How are you? Very good, thank you. It's nice to speak to you again. It's been a yeah, yeah, it sure is, everybody. Welcome to the tent. This is sort of a special edition. Um, we have somebody who we have wanted to have on for, what, probably three years we've been trying to do this. It's been crazy. Um, we have Chris Engelzu of, I guess we, we tell you tell a little bit about you, but you're uh, not only are you the founder of the Freshwater Life Project, which is a uh, a wonderful charity that we've supported, and you'll get a chance to talk about that, Chris, but you have a really cool company called CE Fish Essentials in the UK that is, I have, I have a crush on that company. I think you're doing a great job with what you do. Um, Chris, welcome. And uh, if you can give me the, the, the brief description of your career uh, as a hobby and what you're up to, that would be great. Well, yeah, thank you for having me. It's definitely been well overdue, I think, by now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm really pleased to finally have this opportunity to speak with you and, and to uh, be part of the tint. I've uh, admired the, the podcast from afar. And, oh, that's uh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Chris, you've been a hobbyist for forever, pretty much, right? And <laughs> that's just a lifelong passion of yours? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, for me, it, it, it is forever. Yeah, I mean, I think I started when I was about eight years old, something mm-hmm. like that. It's mm-hmm. been about 30 years. That's great. That's and, great. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing for me was that um, my first fish was from a fun fair, you know. Oh, really? Was that a goldfish or something? Like, yeah, was... yeah. Romantic story in the sense that, um, you know, I, I won this prize with my dad, and uh-huh. you know, I was excited. And then the the guy at the stand said to me, you know, choose one of these fish, you get to take it home, and it'll be your your pet kind of thing. And you know, they've they've got hundreds of fish in bags just hanging right. uh, now it's completely unethical right right <laughs> horrified to see that now <laughs> yeah, you know it, it horrifying you're right but um you know i was so excited and i i saw i was sitting there trying to choose and i saw this one fish that was a tiny little brown thing and i thought uh, you know no one's going to choose that um so i chose the little brown one um and much later on i think you know about a year or two down the line uh this little fish turned out to be the most bright yellow fish with the biggest blackest fins i've ever seen oh wow Wow. comet i guess i don't know well you know it's it's an early lesson and like don't overlook the the what seems to be the ugly duckling right (laughs) Yeah, it was. It just, it taught me a lot, actually. When I the more and more I look back on that, I think it, it teaches me more things. Even though it's such a simple little story, but um, yeah, it, it's it's just you can you can find beauty in in so many ways in that story. But yeah, essentially, for us in the fish keeping world, it's about you know don't overlook uh, even the most bland of species. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think I think you and I have a similar. I guess you hit a, hit the word correctly. We have a similar romantic view of the hobby, 
of fish of the aquatic world. And I think that governs, uh, maybe I'm, I'm overstating it, but I, I believe, uh, no, I feel that way. And I think I get the sense that you do too. That sort of governs uh, a little of what we do in the hobby uh, and in, in our businesses. Uh, there's that sort of o- uh, overriding theme of just the, the, the romance of it all, the, the beauty of nature and uh, the fishes and the excitement and that, that emotional attachment we have to these environments. So it, I think that resonates with you, doesn't it? Yeah, very much. I, I think um, there are many of us in, in the hobby and, and to varying degrees more and more focused on um, nature, I guess. Uh, right. But, you know, some people get into it for different reasons or find their motivation or intrigue sparked by something else. Maybe it's um, the beauty of a, a domestic uh, breeding or you know something else but whatever it is that's so um innate about the connection us like-minded uh, folks right. Seem to have is uh, right still a bit mysterious i guess yeah I and mean, i think that's what kind of keeps us engaged is there's a certain degree i i i know you've kind of written about some of these things about the search for new habitats new fish um I've done that on a, on a different level, of course, the, 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 you know, the, the hunt for certain fishes that I've wanted to keep, you know, I, one of my favorites over the years was the uh, sailfin tetra. And I always had to, you know, I found about out about that fish when I was a kid, when I was like seven years old and there was a certain romance. It was in that uh, famous William T in his book, the exotic aquarium fishes, you know, one of the old editions that my dad had, my dad was a fish hobbyist and yeah. I never kept that fish until I was in my thirties or forties, I think. Uh, and I, I never saw it before. And it was like always in the back of my mind. I really want to see this fish. There was something about the, the way that it was romantic, the way they wrote about it in 1937 or whatever year it was that the, that book was published. And it just kept me engaged. And I think that sort of pursuit of things seems to keep, it, it resonates with you. I see you doing that a lot too in your work and your research. Mm, yeah, I, I can definitely um, relate to Having been a kid, I actually still have one of these old books from when I was a kid. I, I have my first aquarium book, and I think it was kind of one of those sort of bumper aquarium guides to. Right, <laughs> right. I still have some of those myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah. I still have it, and it's still got my little notes in the back and shows which uh, fish I had at the time. And so, <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. It's fun. Well, well, you know what? The thing that's funny, and I, I found this out and I do a lot of research with my writing and my blogs and stuff. And I refer to those old books uh, on occasion because maybe the ideas weren't as fully understood as they are now, but a lot of the observations people made back in the fifties and sixties and even earlier than that were, were spot on. Uh, They may not have had all the analytical tools to make more conclusive, you know, statements about things, but they were, they had, they played their hunches really well. And a really yeah. hobbyist, especially. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of, well, I, th- I think it goes both ways. I think we see many instances where science nowadays is proving a lot of these theories wrong. But correct. At the same time, there there are some really incredible people. It brings those people to light because with very little resources, they were able to make some incredible observations and uh, theories that have you know been proven to be true or, or something similar. Um, absolutely and quite amazing really shows their passion 
Absolutely. Now, one of the things we're going to talk about a lot today um, is we're going to talk about biotopes or biotope aquariums, biotope inspired, that kind of thing. Um, when I think of biotopes, you're the guy I think of. I don't know if you know this. You and Ty probably, but but you especially, um, because you've you first of all, I want to tell everybody about your website, uh, cefishessentials.com. It's just a great go-to site. You really put together a great site there, Chris, with a lot of resources for. Uh, aquarium hobbyists that are into you know biotopic replication or just want to learn a, a little more about where their fishes come from and how they live y- you have some great work there um, some really really good information on the natural habitats and the ecology of our fishes and um, I hope more people stop by and check it out um, and we're going to talk about sea uh, fish essentials a little bit more too but let's talk more about biotopes if you don't mind me switching gears real quick um, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Sure. So, so talk to me now. You are a big proponent of, would you say, biotope aquarium? And how would you describe a biotope aquarium versus biotope inspired? Or do we need to split hairs like that? Uh, you know, I, I think the terminology, unfortunately, is wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and I think that comes from aquascaping, really. And I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, it's not a dig to anybody but no aquascaping is about the um the, the, the makeup of the aquarium isn't it you know the decor and so on right and i think when it came to the point that people started to differentiate between biotopes and aquascapes yes i start to understand that there was a difference there i think whoever named uh the biotope aquarium was thinking solely on the abiotic mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, sort of uh, aspects shall we say of, of those aquariums and not really uh, for me should i say they it should really be called an ecosystem aquarium there you go much better you, you know i think that's been the the problem I, I mean if you're familiar with some of my ramblings here and there and in my discussions with various people I'm a little opinionated. I think the, the the way biotope aquariums have been accepted and the contest the contest idea is great. I love the fact that it educates people. My concern, though, is sometimes the thinking in any of these types of things. When we come up with classifications for stuff, it gets a little too rigid, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, it's important to have guidelines for things, and contests are one thing, but. Um, I don't know. I sometimes I find people saying, well, you know, I'm setting up a, 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 a biotope aquarium. I want to represent the biotope where the cardinal tetra comes from. And then, you know, they're saying, well, I've used a bunch of alder cones and, you know, whatever I could find to create this habitat. I'm thinking, well, if you if you go by the definition that a lot of biotope contest type people use, that would be a, a violation, right? I mean, you're using a, a, a European alder cone in a south american tank but the idea is you're creating a functional representation um of the biotope or or what i mean that's where i get it gets a little muddy and i'm curious to your thoughts on that it's a very interesting one because sometimes um less information works out in your favor in that (laughs) right 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 you know if you just tinted the water you know i don't think anyone would have questioned how you did it um yeah, it's an interesting one. And and actually, you can kind of apply this in a much wider perspective as well. It makes me, especially when you refer to functionality, because mm-hmm. um, this is a subject that comes up quite frequently in my conservation work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about invasive species and their impacts. And um, one of the major things is that as we begin to understand more and more about invasive species, and um, the, I am going to bring this back into the aquarium world in a moment. <laughs> no, 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 um, this is good. But, uh, you know, the, the initial impression is that, okay, they, they cause devastation, they displace native species and so on. And, and that is very, very much true in a lot of cases, especially on islands with high endemism, um, right. high levels of endemism and stuff like that. But um, in many cases, what is being found over and over and over again, and I, I will refer you to a fantastic book called The New Wild by Fred Pierce. Wow. Um, he gives countless examples of where invasive species um, actually are where where humans have caused a level of degradation that has impacted native uh, fishes, for example, mm-hmm. or any various other types of uh, organism. The the invasive species is actually the one that thrives and takes over from this uh, native species, obviously at their expense, but maintains a level of functionality to that ecosystem. Because without that invasive species, you might not have a fish there. Interesting. That's an interesting thought. Yeah, so in in many cases, the the functionality is more important than, uh, only in the examples, please don't, Get me wrong, only in the example where a human uh, or the correct term is a sort of anthropogenic impact mm-hmm. of, of high significance has occurred, you know, previously to to create that um, space for this invasive species to take over. And so coming back to the aquarium hobby, if we start looking at functionality, I often don't really have a problem with people making substitutes for different things if there is a justifiable reason if it if it gives some functionality in the aquarium because right in the end you have to think about the well-being of the fish correct it's not a diorama it's it's yeah yeah so that's my stance on it really if it's something that can contribute to the well-being of the aquarium inhabitants then um i i'm not i'm not going to get too caught up on are actually you know that's not from that particular location or locality. Well, because sometimes you can't source this stuff. I mean, and there's certain, you know, you and I both know you can't necessarily bring things in legally or or ecologically sustainably from some of these locales. You simply can't do it. So you don't have a choice. You have to substitute. But, you know, once a leaf starts decomposing, I would challenge anybody but the most hardened botanist to really identify the difference between a a katapa leaf that may have come from Malaysia and a, you know, some other leaf from the jungles of, uh, of uh, Venezuela or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the function is the same. I, I think that's where you're getting at. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's very yeah. true. Yeah. You know, we can, we can try and source all of these things. And as you say, many, many times you actually can't. Um, and I suppose there's a, there's a part of the hobby, which I, I also subscribe to as well on the contrast uh, on the sort of contrary mm-hmm. um that is exciting a bit of a challenge to try to source those things absolutely can, as long as it's not like you say uh, environmentally um, 
damaging. Right. But it's a bit like um, some sort of a, a collector trying to find a rare record or, um, you know, something like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's true. And I, and I remember back in, and those of you that um, follow the tent, you know that we've, uh, we've shared some of Chris's works over the years. And back in 2017, you did uh, a Rio Nene biotope. Uh, at an at a local fish store in the UK, yeah. and um, that's one that really, uh, you, in fact, you put it up on Instagram recently again, and and I, I think I commented that's still one of my favorite aquariums because it was just done with there was something about it, and I found a, a, a neat little quote from you uh, when, in in the little blog you wrote the blog post back then. You were talking about how you included different types of leaf litter, and you said something that hit me perfectly you said each one told a different story of a different tree and its relationship to the habitat and to me that is that is fantastic that's the essence of a natural or ecological aquarium that functional aesthetics or function um that is that kind of your philosophy that governs a lot of the work you do with your, your aquariums uh yeah very much i mean and, and it's not just um decorative wording you know it's right. very much uh, in that particular aquarium I, I had a plan to try to incite, and I always do this, to, to try and incite some natural behavior and then be able to catch it in an image somehow or something like that. And uh, there were a few moments in that aquarium, but one of them was the uh, the small trio of uh, biotodoma. Yep. Um, and I managed to capture them just picking at one of the um, chemorops uh, fruits it's like a palm fruit. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my, they, they were just sort of moving over one of the logs and, and, and there's a sort of palm leaf in the back. And I've seen them in these type of habitats. Um, actually, the, the one that stands in my mind is the Biotodoma uh, waverinae. Mm-hmm. But this was a cupido. Mm-hmm. And um, just getting them to that point where they start picking at the fruit right. was, it, it was exactly what I was going for. And it was a very natural thing for them to do. Yeah. Uh, so stuff like that, all these little, um, whether it's a leaf or, or a fruit or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's this sort of botanical addition that relates to a particular plant that has a relationship in some way with certain fish or certain creatures there are many uh, fish species that translocate seeds from one place to another their right and, um you know so on and so on but just i i remember reading an article somewhere about the about that and that these these fish were picking up fruits and uh, i thought wow i wonder I wonder how that would work out. And just to capture the moment was really, really quite nice. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what's so cool. I mean, again, it, it's beyond just creating a, a look. And I think I, with what we've started here, I, you know, the term that we use, at least Tannen in my little world, and we call it botanical style. I think style was the worst choice I could have chosen because it implies a, a style as if it was aquascaping. I think what you said, ecological aquarium or natural aquarium is probably a little better um, nomenclature but i think the the cool thing is you you hit it right on the head uh, to get these to encourage natural behaviors in the fish um you need to provide them with a something that's a physiologically 
natural environment, or to them, it seems to be a representation of their natural environment. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I love the fact that, you know, again, I'm going to make a a guess, but I I imagine you're okay with, you know, biofilms and fungal growths and detritus and all the stuff that fish is actually utilized in the ecosystem. Um, And and recreating that is is really important and and embracing that rather than, you know, polishing it out of our systems. I think it's really important. I, 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 I'm guessing that you feel the same or do you have different thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I feel the same. I've just uh, gone through the, the process once again in my uh, Atabapo biotope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of little uh, fungal growths here and there on, on some uh, large cuts of uh, magnolia. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason I, I mentioned that is because I use the same in the uh, Nanaib biotope that you mentioned Mm -hmm. uh, to create uh, a sort of representative uh, substitute for the uh, Licania trees that you find Mm -hmm. in the habitat. And uh, adding that in made a big difference. You know, it's a perfect habitat where you would find um, discus and we had Nanaib discus in that biotope. Yeah. All of the fish in that biotope fell into their little niches and i think that's, oh, that's one kind of that really like that yeah yeah that's neat so they're, they're they're actually that's another point that I, I don't think i've ever talked about like that and you're right the fishes if you provide a representation of the the natural um niche where they come from they'll they'll exploit it um, and that, that's a good thought, like leaf litter dwelling fishes, like, yeah, Ilaco carax or some of the, the darter tetras, they'll live in the leaf litter bed. Uh, their mm-hmm. fishes will, you know, pick up, you know, wood and so forth. So that's a great point. Um, now I, I know, uh, getting a little more, uh, down and dirty, you use a lot of like philodendron and monstera, uh, in, in, in that tank. And I know you use that in some of your other work. Um, is that something you think, uh, of course should be doing a little more of utilizing terrestrial plants sort of, you know hanging over into the water or, or however you want to use it? Yeah, I think there's a there's a place, you know, for that um, in context. Uh, I, I like to use them. Do you know, I, I used to use them absolutely years ago. And I, I used to try and do it even as a kid. I used to put uh, my – we had these uh, spider plants in the house. Uh-huh. And I used to try and take off the babies and get the roots to grow into the tank and right, right. do all these type of things. And then that made me start, um, you know, experimenting with and learning more about those type of things as I got older. Um, and I remember uh, posting up a video. Well, at first I put a photo on Facebook years ago. I don't remember when it was, uh, maybe about uh, 2008 or Mm-hmm. Way, way back and um you know everyone's like wow what 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 have you done there <laughs> and i was like well I, I know of another guy who does the same which was um nandi hibatal from hungary uh-huh uh he's the guy who runs the jinguary um, oh wow who's breeding the uh the wild uh jingu discus over there mm-hmm. um but yeah, he was doing the same, and we were talking about it for a long time that no one was was doing these things. But yeah, I think it's fantastic if you if you enjoy, um, say for example, you're enthusiastic about the Amazon, which is sort of my thing. Yeah. I've come to love 
so many other places as well. Um, if you love those ecosystems, you can't help but fall in love with the plants and you know the insects and the, the, yep. the lizards and the snakes and you know, you, it just grows and grows and grows. It, it's, it's not only just about the fish, but it's about how do all these organisms interact? Exactly. Mm-hmm. The, the relationship between land and water, in particular uh, in the Amazon and, and some of the surrounding areas, I find that incredibly fascinating. The, you know, the Agapo and the, the Igarape and the Varzea, th- those types of, you know, the Pantanal. Uh, I spent hours talking to Ty about, you know, flooded, you know, grasslands and things like that, because it's an amazing thing to see an environment transform from terrestrial to aquatic and do that, you know, a couple times a year and see how the fishes move into those areas and exploit them. I mean, and, and it teaches you to be a more observant, I think a more observant aquarist, more aware when you realize that intimate relationship between land and water, it's not just a river, it's, you know, a flooded forest. It's a, it's a different mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. And you know, there's something to be said about going somewhere once and then mm-hmm. going there another time, but with a whole heap more knowledge than you had before. Yeah. Um, you know, when you can go to a place and now you don't just know a lot of the fish, but you know what the substrate is made of. You you know yep. that, um, it's mostly comprising uh, pyrite or <laughs> right, uh, right. laterite soils or, uh, you know, the, the plants in this region are graminoid grasses and uh, aroids growing from the trees and all of these things, it starts to build a picture and help you really, really understand why everything is the way it is. Yeah. And uh, it helps if you want to be a good um, biotope aquarist, especially it really helps to not only be enthusiastic about keeping fish, but about keeping ecosystems. Yes. Yes, I think I think that's absolutely absolutely a perfect takeaway. What do you think the one thing that like hobbyists in general could do better um, when trying to replicate wild aquatic ecosystems? And whether it's a technique or I mean, I'll tell you what my my thing is. I'll just tell you right off the bat. The thing, the number one thing I think we can do better as a hobbyist to replicate wild uh, wild aquatic habitats is to do research outside of the aquarium world to actually get on Google Scholar or get on, you know, um, ResearchGate or some of those places and, and research, um, ask questions or go go on a trip <laughs> like what you do. What, what do you think uh, technique-wise or idea-wise? Do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that that's um, – I say this in my lectures all the time. I, I always refer to Google Scholar, and I, I systematically explain to the audience how to use these resources. Smart. And it's very really simple once you do yeah, and you find that the the caliber of aquarist increases. You start to see people that attended a lecture once now start telling other people about oh, actually that that research you can find here, or yeah, you say oh wow, actually I, I had an impact there, and increase yeah. the quality of that person's fish keeping. Um, but yeah, for me, I think. Uh, I totally agree with you in terms of research, but I think, you know, the best thing most people can do in keeping biotype aquariums is to wait much longer before even putting in a fish. Ah, love you for that. Yes. Yes. You know, one, my, my, 
last Biotobe Aquarium that I put together for myself, um, I waited about 10 months before I went in there. That's awesome. And I was just watching what was happening and just testing the water here and there and just seeing, you know, like what little organisms started to grow, take some samples from the leaf litter and have a look, see what's in there on a microscope, you know, just out of interest. Yep. I, I, I've started. I've started doing that myself uh, a few years ago, and I right now I have a tank that's four months in with nothing, and it, it, and it, I'm loving this tank just as much as if it had fish in it. You're right. Yeah. There's so, so much to learn. Yeah, so and I think it puts you into the mind frame of when you keep plants, for example. When mm-hmm. you keep plants, you don't look at them every day. <laughs> right, right, right. You'll drive yourself crazy. It grew a millimeter. It grew one millimeter today. Yeah, well, if you're a proper enthusiast, you probably do. But, right, right. But not but you that don't way. Have, Yeah, you don't have those expectations. Right. You don't expect something uh, extravagant within a day. And that type of patience um, can be applied in fish keeping as well. And it really pays off for me. I always say this, and especially with newbies, Mm -hmm. I say rule number one is patience. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Patience and coupled with observation. And and I think it's, it's amazing. I mean, I'm not going to sound like the old, old, old angry guy, but it's amazing to me that in a world where there's so many resources so readily available at literally in the palm of your hand with the internet and, um, people will go to the easiest possible places to get information uh but they still won't go very deep the, and they'll you know they'll they'll they just for some reason people don't like to google it's much easier to ask somebody else uh or to even just look at your current that's the one thing that drives me crazy and i know you and we'll talk about your entrepreneurial bent in a little bit but as an, a business owner you know i love answering questions from people but boy i spend a lot more time referring them to resources lately because I could tell them the same thing over and over again, but nothing drives me more crazy than when somebody orders something from me, like leaves or whatever, they get it. And after, you know, apparently they were excited, researched my site, read my articles, whatever. And then they get it and say, what do I do? Do I need to prepare this stuff? What what do I do? Do I boil it? And I'm thinking, why did you even start something without doing the most basic research? And that it's sad, but that's a trend I've noticed a lot of lately. And it's not just me, other people I know in, the business end have noticed that too, but do you notice that as well? There seems to be a hesitancy of people to pick up their phone or whatever and actually do some research. Yeah, I think it, it is the case, but I, I also think it's a reflection of people's desire to do the right thing, um, but not really do the homework. So there's good intention behind it. It's just, you know, I've had very similar things before. Um, the first thing that popped into my head is somebody bought, um, ha- had a fish that didn't grow in their aquarium and a, a lorry carried. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, well, you know, it's a very big fish species. Um, it, it doesn't really go in this aquarium, really. It should go in something a bit bigger than this. And they, they said, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, but you know, when when we put it in, it was only small. <laughs> like, well, yeah, but <laughs> what did you expect was going to happen? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, does so, it just stay the same size forever? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then 
you know, sometimes I don't even know if people believe this, to be honest, but they say, oh, yeah, but they, you know, they're supposed to stay to the size of the aquarium. Oh, yeah. Horrible. But it's just really an excuse for poor fish keeping. And I, yeah. I think it's, it's not entirely their fault because uh, stores could do a lot more. We, um, we all but, could. Yeah. Yeah, we, we all could. You know what um, I've noticed? Oh, sorry to interrupt, but this is, you, you brought something up. And you know I like to interrupt anyway. But I'm, <laughs> Let me tell you one thing that I thought about, too, in that regard. In Instagram and so forth, I think we show people all these finished products. We celebrate the finished product and the cool aquarium shot and, you know, all these different things. So people just, they want to get to that. And they don't feel they have to do the research. They can just copy what that guy did and that'll get them there. Yeah. I, do you know what I... It's a bit of a it's a bit of a tricky one because you know we've all all of us who have come to a position of being able to call themselves um, an advanced aquarist or or you know just have generally good experience in, in um, aquariums right. would have to have made a ton of mistakes on the way and it's easy for me to say, well, you know, sometimes people just need to learn the hard way and just make oh, mistakes right. and so on. But on the other hand, we're dealing with little lives. Correct. Um, and so it's a bit more important that people learn first. Correct. You know, uh, if this was people just casually killing dogs every week. <laughs> right. right. I, I don't think that would go over very well. <laughs> right. yeah, it would be absolutely, right. uh, you know, yeah. it would be mad. Yeah, they, would, yeah. they would never allow that. I agree. I agree. Um, I want to jump now. You know, we jump all over the place. Whenever you talk to me, the, the conversation goes everywhere. <laughs> I want to jump to, was it 2009 when you started your uh, CE Fish Essentials? Tell us a little bit about your why you started it, what you do. Uh, tell people about your 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 brand uh, and your mm-hmm. information resources because it's just been, I love it. So talk, go. Yeah. <laughs> it's been an interesting journey, to be honest, because it started off around that time. Um, I was quite heavily involved in the discus community. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have an absolute adoration of discus fish on that. Um, have become a little disengaged with the community side of things. Yeah, um, you know how things get in the fish. You get, can only do so many things. Yeah, yeah, and it can be a challenge sometimes. There's a lot of um, business interests conflicting, yeah. and people, you know, make enemies right. of you. Yes, and, and I just keep to myself nowadays in that respect. But yeah, um, you know, it was a case of. Wanting to feed a, a good food and realizing that, well, well, mostly because I didn't want to make food anymore, but right. I started to buy uh, products. And I said, okay, well, let me try this beef heart product from this person. Right. Okay, well, fine. This is falling to pieces in my aquarium, but this is the most highly recommended uh, food and so I'm, I'm I was quite surprised I said okay well maybe it was a mistake so I tried others and it was the same situation I was like wow you know I've been 
doing this uh, myself for a long time and producing much much better quality stuff. I, I think, right? You know, maybe I should try to do that myself. So I just started to prepare uh, for other people as well. Mm-hmm. Over time, as people asked me, and, and you know, through conversation on social media, you say, "Well, I I do this, I do that." And people say, hey, could I try? Sure. All right. Um, slowly sort of gained interest and people started to say, hey, you know what? This is actually really, really good. And I think it was been about a year and a bit, maybe a year and a half at the most. Um, I think I'd overtaken everybody that existed um, at that point and was supplying some of the major discus uh, retailers and so on um and that was great but uh, at some point i sort of realized there was a part of me that was saying well this could be more natural like Mm -hmm. this didn't align very well with what i actually believed right um and so i started playing with the idea or the very earliest ideas of what has become nature kind fish food now. Mm-hmm. You scratched your own itch, as they say. Yeah, it was just having read so much research, it just became more and more and more evident that something better could be done. Yes. And um, even though the, the, the beef heart food that I had produced was absolutely miles ahead of what had, had existed previously. Mm hmm that it just wasn't quite enough for me. There, there was a sort of um, uh, discontent, I suppose. Um, so I started devising nature kind, experimenting with that, sending the samples off for nutritional analysis and through um, R&D trial mm-hmm. uh, with somebody I knew um and got some really really good results i think we got um well it's been a long time since i did that but uh we we did a 30 day trial with uh and some other species and we had um between all uh we had uh what was it 99 point something survival rate of the fish um i'm not sure why the other one Passed away, but <laughs> um, <laughs> there's always that one. <laughs> yeah, it was that one, but we we can say ninety nine point whatever it was, and uh, yeah, the growth rate, the specific growth rate or something was. Uh, we had a oh geez, I can't remember the numbers very well, but anyway, in in layman terms, we had between one and one point two five inch uh, standard length on each of the fish, um, wow. within thirty days of of growth. That's amazing. Um, it's a really, really good growth rate. Well, you know, you had one thing I remember, and, and, and I'll let you get back to the story, but I remember you, um, I think on your on your packaging, it says something to the effect that it's made using the, the same ingredients that the fishes eat in the wild. And boy, yeah. you hit it on the head. That is like, that's absolutely perfect thinking. I mean, that, yeah. that yeah, that's huge. And Yeah, and- I mean, it's not, of course, I've... I've really really strived once i got onto that path i strived to find so many 
different ingredients to put in. That's um, the hard part. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, there are substitutions because you have to think of nutrition. Right. Right. <laughs> stability of, and all that stuff. Yeah. Palatability. And you have to think of uh, the um, composition and the integrity within the water column and uh, right. pollution. Um, so, as in, uh, you know, nitrogenous waste and so on. Right. And so there's a lot to dice with when producing a, a fish food it's not just as simple as hey this is what they eat in the wild have that right um, put it in a gel and be done with it yeah yeah it's really not that simple um but in the end we managed to create something that really got very 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 close and That's awesome. the results uh speak for themselves really like there's, there's so many people that have just had fantastic results with the food and I'm, I'm so so pleased because you know i traveled to many places <laughs> right right learning about um the fish in their habitats studying them you know inside out taking notes and researching 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 speaking with uh, specialists uh, just so much and it pays off in the end Oh yeah, and the passion, and you know, for for those of you that live in in the UK, you you may or may not be. I hope you are familiar with the Nature Kind brand. But where, where else are you distributed in Europe? I know in North America, I'm going to get tons of emails from listeners saying, "When is this stuff available in the United States? Is it available somewhere yet?" I know you had talked at one point that might happen, or uh, is it just there's a lot of difficulties right now with that? Well, do you know, what? I think it's it's just a case of I. Currently, I'm a, I'm a one-man business. Yeah, well, I, I totally can relate to that. I understand. <laughs> so it has been very challenging. There's a lot of things I don't know, um, and a lot of things I'm still learning in that aspect. Um, of course. But um, really, it's just been that the last couple of years, I have been focusing on acquiring um, intellectual property mm -hmm. for the brand um, and so on. And yeah, really, I, I would love more than anything to export to wherever. But my main goal now is to look at how we can um, produce this food in a way that doesn't change its integrity, right. but is um, on a, a higher scale. We, we, I think we have the same, I think we, we talked about this not too long ago, you and I, I think we have the same sort of, I don't want to say problem, but the same sort of dilemmas in that you have a small company with big ambitions and a real mission, sort of mission focus, mission statement and core values that you don't want to compromise. And it's hard. Like, I know one of the things I got into in the last year, two things I got into is sort of, um, creating substrates i really am obsessed i've been obsessed on my whole life with aquarium substrates and did kind of what you did talk to geological professors soil scientists ecologists you know try to replicate some of these characteristics of soils in various parts of you know south america and the the, the biggest problem after you figure out how to do it is is how to do it at a scale that you can get it out to more people to meet with the demand and i, I totally can relate to that because like your food, my stuff is handmade. It's literally mixed by hand. Uh, yeah. And it just takes time. And, and that's the hard part. Like, what do you do as, a, as an entrepreneur? Do you think, well, yeah. it, is your goal to, you don't want to create the biggest company in the world, but 
it sounds like you, you know you want to get that food that that idea out to more people how do you do it you know that's the challenge it's an interesting thing and actually i read a really good book which i really recommend to you actually sure. um it's by a guy called paul jarvis and it's called mm-hmm. company of one i've heard of that book I, i've never read i've heard of that and i've heard of the author oh cool. i really I will, recommend you read it out yeah, because it's it's about basically why staying small is actually the next big thing for business. And what well, um, I think what it's referring to is that sometimes um, it's not in every business's interest to scale up. You know, if you've got a company where you sell handmade, handcrafted candles made from local beeswax. Right then there's no use for you to be selling at a large scale. The whole point is that it's a small local business. That's what's the attraction for that company. Exactly. And and that's the thing that I've enjoyed with Tannen. And I know you've enjoyed with CE Nature Essentials is, is, is the sourcing, the, the curating, the experimenting. I mean, like, like you, everything I offer is something that I play with myself and, I won't sell it if I if I can't say I've had success with it. If it kills my fish, I'm sure as hell not going to sell it to anybody else. Uh, and and that's just a it's a process, like like you said, and developing a supplier network and um, you know going. Sometimes you have to go slowly too, and that that's why the one thing that I admire about your another thing, one of the many things I admire about your company, is uh, an approach that I've taken. You're an information guy. You love to share ideas. As and that, I get the sense. Tell me if I'm wrong. That you should the idea selling the idea to people, getting people thinking about the way of keeping fish and learning, is almost as exciting to you, if not more so, and more important than actually selling, you know, fish food and leaves and stuff like that. I, yeah, I get that sense. Because that's how I feel. Way more rewarding. Yeah. Um, you know, it's nice to see orders coming in every day. That's fantastic. Sure. But uh, sure. at the same time, there, there's nothing that beats. Uh, a feedback or a review. You know? Agreed. Agreed. And being able to talk one-to-one to the ultimate yeah. end consumer, that's really important as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the nice part. I mean, but then on the other hand, we have these uh, businesses that potentially could um, scale up. Yeah. Um, there's definitely room. It's just for me, the main thing is about, um, the integrity of the product you know the first yeah. i've had talks with many companies some based in china and various places and right the first thing is you know oh well you know if you add uh x percent of water to the product we can use it in this machine yeah um, that changes um, the formula i need a new machine i don't need that one <laughs> <laughs> right right you, and there there's the that slows it down that's the another hurdle to overcome yeah, yeah, so it does slow it down because it means there's a, a level of um, innovation that needs to take place. Right. Um, and that takes investment and capital, essentially. Right. And, and to do it at a large scale, it's not really easy for uh, one man, let alone a guy that's also running a charity and, and various right. other projects. So, exactly. I mean, I've got the time and effort for it. Believe me, I'm, I'm one of the most organized. Well, you, you love it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but even that it's still is only the human can only do so much you know it's so one person yeah. um yeah and I, I you know again um 
I'm going to, at the, at the risk of sounding crassly commercial, I, I want to encourage, um, you know, our followers to check out Chris's site and look at some of the things he offers. And, um, you know, he, he offers certain types of wood, certain leaves and botanicals, and each one has a story and a place and a degree of authenticity, which is really cool. And our friend, James Sheen at uh, Blackwater UK was able to carry some of your products, which I thought was awesome. Uh, I'm jealous. Uh, and no, I, think, honestly, I wish I could get them to you, to be honest. I've been looking yeah, at love to. sanitary uh, certification, to be honest. I think, you know, that's the thing that's tricky is shipping to different countries sometimes gets a little crazy. But I think it's I don't think it'll be as hard as we think. But I, yeah. I, again, I, I love your your product range. Again, I think you and I are almost like brothers from another mother, as they say, in, in our mindset <laughs> is that we have certain you can tell by looking at Chris's site that he is interested in certain things and passionate as hell about certain things. And that's what he's offering. Uh, just like with Tim and people say the same thing. They say, boy, you really love what you're offering. I, I just got a little out of control and have more and more things. And sometimes <laughs> I think I have to pare it down, but that's yeah. the beauty. That's, that's what I admire. This is like mutual admiration, but that's what I like about your business, Chris. And that's why I want people to support your work. And let's get into freshwater life project. Um, that's something really important. And, um, near and dear to all of us because we we believe in the mission but but maybe can you give a little background to people about um what it is and why it was formed and and what you do mm, yeah so uh freshwater life project is a registered uk-based charity we do international um conservation work but we are a small organization um we essentially are dedicated to freshwater conservation, not exclusively um, fishes, but um, all creatures that uh, depend on some sort of um, freshwater environment. Um, and we're looking to identify species and habitats most at risk to try to make a difference for them. <laughs> um, it came out of Actually, one of my, I've, for many, many years, I suppose I should explain that my, my father, my heritage uh, on my father's side is from Cyprus. Mm -hmm. um, so I have Cypriot heritage. Um, and, you know, so I've naturally been fascinated by the biodiversity of Cyprus since very young. Right. Um, and, you know, years ago I came across this, uh, killifish uh, i sort of generated a bit of an interest in in killifish and then i said oh wow there's a there's a mediterranean killifish okay let's have a look there oh they have something in cyprus so next trip i went along with uh, my good uh, cypriot friend uh, christodilos parmatsias um, you might have seen him in a few of my yeah 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 and uh, we're kind of like the the Greek version of uh, Ivan and George Fear. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so we just go on these expeditions in Cyprus whenever we're there. And we started doing that around about 2011, I guess. Um, yeah, I think so. And came across these killifish. And when you, when, well, when we got to their habitats, we started to see, okay, well, actually there's, the only ones we could find were living in a drain. <laughs> um, and 
the next year, the ones in the drain were gone. Mm. Um, and we, we were able to find them elsewhere on, on the other side of this huge peninsula. But um, we constantly kept coming across uh, different human impacts. You know, the place was a dumping ground everywhere. Cars driving through the habitats, motocross going through these habitats. Um, one year we'd go back and, oh, where there used to be a, a small body of water there, there was actually now concrete and a lamppost. Oh. Um, we found <laughs> one of the years we were going around doing some monitoring and we saw a, a farmer had dug up the middle of this road um, to put a channel, like a concrete tunnel below the road to channel his uh, effluent directly into the lake. Oh, <laughs> Boy, that's, you couldn't dial up a better recipe to destroy an ecosystem than that. It was yeah. absolutely shocking. I've got photos wow. of it, actually. Uh, but, yeah, just shocking. We, we just found over and over again more and more issues with these uh, kingfish in cycles. Um, so we started working with a fantastic... Um, theological researcher called uh, Stamadis Zogaris from Greece. Um, and he had done up till then the bulk of the research on Aphanios fasciatus, which is the next mm-hmm. um, in Cyprus. And he'd done a whole bunch of other sort of uh, freshwater research as well. And he sort of acted like a mentor for me and was really encouraging. It was, I was so surprised when I expressed interest to try and sort of be involved and give him information. I was like, oh, you know, I thought if I can just give him my information, he can make something happen because he's the scientist. Right. And he was just so encouraging to me to be involved. And he, he acted so happy that I was interested. That That's it, awesome. it, it twisted my brain the other way around. And I, I was like, wow, actually I, could do this and uh so I, i'm always very thankful to him because he gave me a sort of belief that i could yeah. do it um and so yeah he just he started sending me some of the field work um assessment sheets and saying well if you could go and when you on your next trip if you could fill out these sheets in this particular way and you know because you everything has to be done in a sort of strict uh, right protocol kind of thing yeah in a protocol way um so I'd done that, and then I was included in one of his pieces of research. Uh, you know, my name and and our organisation. At that time, we weren't uh, registered, but then we mm-hmm. registered later on. Um, I, I was so excited to be part of this publication that it made me want to do something else. And um, you know me, whether it's the Amazon or somewhere else, <laughs> you know, scrolling around on Google Earth or something, looking right, around. right. And I managed to, uh, you know, I was studying the, the tiny little details of Cyprus from these uh, satellite maps. And I, I came across a place in the north and I thought, wow, OK, that looks like it could be a killifish habitat, um, having been to a few. And um, so, yeah, 2015, I went with um, Matt Ford, who is the founder of seriously fish mm-hmm. the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah great resource yeah um so he he and i went over there to have a look as part of the freshwater life team 
and is he in the UK he, by the way? Is that where he is that where Matt is? He was in the UK and then he moved to Malaga. To oh, do okay. And I think now he's in Germany. I think working with uh, IUCN on some stuff. Oh wow, cool. So yeah, he's doing some amazing stuff. Um, hi Matt, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, we we actually. Basically, the hunch was right. I, we found a new population of Afania speciatus in... That's super Greece. cool. Um, and what I was getting to, as uh, mentioning that, was that uh, Matt was supposed to... Because he had a more scientific background than me, he, mm-hmm. he was supposed to write a paper about this new uh, geographic range extension of Afanios in Cyprus, and we were going to publish that together. Um, but he became so incredibly busy that he just couldn't do it. And so it was just sitting there. And I was like, oh, God, you know, who's going to help to do this? The Madis was very busy. And right. In the end, I just, I got sick and tired and I did it myself. That's awesome. And, um, I just studied all of these other papers about the correct protocols to follow, the right way to do it, and learn how to use uh, calipers and all these different things to, you know, to make all the measurements correct and morphometric data and all that. And in the end, I was able to publish with the support of um, Stamadis and uh, and guidance. And uh, and yeah, and Salih Guso, who's uh, from the north, uh, he's a professor from the north. That's amazing, amazing stuff. And I know there there's some other studies. You're doing the the one with the Solaria, was it Solaria fluvitalis, I think it was, that, that you were doing yeah. like a uh, reintroduction kind of program. And I think in the past we've done, uh, I'm, I'm sort of proud that Tannin Aquatics has supported some of your work. We've had a couple of things where uh, charity, where some of the purchase of, some of the proceeds from purchase of certain products went to your charity. And the one thing that you told me that was neat, First of all, tell me, tell us a little more about that project. But that you told me that was kind of cool is that it doesn't take a tremendous amount of money to fund one of these little research projects, um, or less than we think, anyway. And every little bit helps. Yeah. And so you're absolutely correct. Yeah, because in some cases we already have the equipment we need um, because we've done some of these trips already. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it's, a, it's a, a matter of getting the right people all in the same place um, and with a small amount of resources that they need to just do one expedition. And it might be three days, it might be two, it might be five, it might be a week right? or more. But sometimes it can literally be a couple of days because you have to sample one specific area and this is what we've been doing over the last few years in Cyprus with the Solaria Fluviatilis project. This is a really interesting one because that fish um, was first discovered in 1909 in Cyprus by a naturalist. He wasn't a scientist by any means. And um, he thought it might be of interest to the Natural History Museum in London. So he sent the samples, uh, the specimens over and they kept them. Um, and it wasn't until Stamadis Zogaris actually mm. started to search more and more about the uh, origins of the sort of freshwater species of Cyprus that he came to realize there were none. And then the only one he could find was this uh, 
these specimens in the Natural History Museum, thanks to a guy called James McLean, who's the fish curator there. Mm -hmm. um, and they they still had the samples uh, in the oh, jungle, wow. 111 years later or whatever it was at the time. Super cool. Um, and, and they managed to um, identify, I guess, that that was a, a native freshwater species. But yeah, nowadays we, we're working, us through Freshwater Life Project are actually working with the Natural History Museum to try to extract some viable DNA from those specimens and hopefully sequence them uh, to see where exactly they fit in the phylogenetic tree of the Solaria genus. Um, so we can find out who's the closest relative for this introduction program, because the likeliness is that it's extinct on Cyprus. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason being that it will most likely is that in 1949, they conducted a massive DDT campaign oh. across the whole island. Um, the, the government thought it was a good idea to try to eliminate malaria, which obviously is a major problem in some places. Mm -hmm. um, and they thought they would just poison all of the waterways and so <laughs> most probably that was the reason why the fish doesn't exist anymore because it was only known from three torrents in one district wow um so yeah we're just trying to figure out now if if once us our search has been completed and we've searched about 90 percent of the island um wow there's a few remote places that we actually on the last trip, I found a, a tributary that wasn't even on the maps. So we're oh, going to wow. have to try to check that place next time we go, but it took us two days into the mountains to get there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, yeah, it was, a, it was amazing anyway. But once we finished our search, we can come to the conclusion, I guess that it doesn't exist there unless we find some lost relic population. Um, and then begin the feasibility study as to whether it's uh, realistic to reintroduce the closest relative or not. That's super cool. And and that's one where everybody can actively donate to right now, correct? I mean, to help yeah, defray some of that cost. Yeah, you can, you can just literally go to freshwaterlifeproject.org and um, donate a pound, if you like, or a dollar. Um, you can make it a monthly payment or you can do it one-off and it all goes towards our projects with that. That's our thing. Every team member is a volunteer at Freshwater Life Project. We all have uh, jobs and pastimes and we dedicate our spare time to trying to make a difference for freshwater ecosystems. Um, so yeah, all of the money that we get through the charity is allocated to projects. We don't spend loads on advertising budgets or Facebook ads or. Right. So if you, the bottom line is for those of you that want to support a pretty worthwhile cause, you know, to support research in, in you know, freshwater ecosystems, this is a really great, uh, a really great cause to support. And uh, I know we've done some stuff in the past with products where we've donated a percentage of the sales to it. I think we'll do something again. We need to do more of this kind of stuff because it, it, I think it gives people hope, especially as hobbyists, fish hobbyists, where they realize they can actually contribute something that's actually meaningful um, in an area that they're passionate about. So I think it would be really cool to get more hobby hobbyists to participate in this type of thing for you guys. Uh, Cause you're doing some really incredible work. Do you know what? I think that there's, there's another way that um, the hobbyist in particular, aquarists can 
be involved. And um, we have a project which is uh, not officially published, so to speak, but we're, we're doing the behind the scenes work at the moment. Um, so this will be quite interesting to a lot of aquarists. We're working on a rare and endangered species um, program, a project that will try to connect uh, aquarists who have species that are endangered in the wild or, you know, threatened species that they're reproducing in captivity. Um, and we'll be, we'll be looking to train these people to follow very specific conservation related guidelines on their care, um, hygiene management, genetics, and breeding and so on. Um, so that those fish could at some point be included in global conservation efforts and be uh, released back into the wild in some cases. Oh, wow. That's super cool. Um, yeah, so at this point, I think anybody, if I can give a call out to anybody who is um, keeping a species that uh, is perhaps listed as endangered or critically endangered or anything like that um please do make contact with us because you may be able to help in the long run by being involved at the moment we're just taking uh information from people uh, expressions of interest to be involved um and then once the project is ready to go we'll be looking to contact these people to say right we have training programs ready to go to teach you how to follow the right protocols and guidelines so you can make a difference for conservation and not just be uh, Joe Bloggs in your basement keeping a rare fish, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Now, now, how could people get a hold of you? Just go right to the Freshwater Life Project site or is there an email address or a specific way to contact um, you? Yeah, you can use the contact form on the website at freshwaterlifeproject.org or just simply email info at freshwaterlifeproject.org um, cool. and just mention the rare species program in the uh, subheading that, 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 sounds, that sounds like it's it really has incredible potential to include all kinds of people you know citizen scientists and um, everybody can everybody can play a part in this kind of stuff I think that's what's so exciting and as people that are more than just casually interested in tropical fish and fish in general um, it's really nice to know that we can all do our part, you know, to, to, to help um, make some, some interesting studies and, and uh, fund some great work. And uh, I appreciate your taking the time to just, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Cause I think that's really a cool thing. I, don't know, um, I think it's uh, important for the fish keeping community yeah. um, to do what they can. And also I must say at, at the higher level, as well the industry mm -hmm. to be involved in these things as well to make i agree changes. i agree and we need to be uh as an industry we need to i mean uh that should be a big focus and i hope we see more of that i really do um yeah. now i know i've kept i told you i was going to keep you for an hour and it's already over an hour no. I, can i i just want to wrap maybe get you a few more questions in um i wrote down a couple of questions that people have asked me to ask you um so if you don't mind answering a few um all right so we'll get those and then we'll let you get on with your evening so here here's a here's an easy one for you uh this is from chris 
in Wisconsin here in the United States. And she says, uh, if you had one rule, I don't know. If, I don't know if she meant rule, but I, that's what she wrote. If you had one rule to offer anyone who is interested in creating a remarkable biotope aquarium, what would it be? And I don't know if she meant rule or tip, you know, do you have a tip, but what's the one thing, like the one thing you think people should embrace? Oh, okay. This Told is you it's an, an easy one. <laughs> well, you know, our what? listeners I, give tough questions. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pressure myself to try and provide something other than what I've already said, because earlier on, I did mention about patience and I did right. mention it's about, um, you know, leaving your aquarium for much, much longer before you introduce fish. Uh, we spoke also about research, and these are all mm-hmm. fantastic um, things to consider when you're going in. I think, I, I suppose I would try to touch on what we spoke about uh, previously as well, about just thinking about the bigger picture, the ecosystem, Right. Um, looking at the species you're working with and try to incite natural behavior. That's, that's probably a good one. That's a great one. And, that, and that's, that's like, that's a great, great point. I mean, we could, boy, we could do a whole future show about that yeah. <laughs> because there's a lot there. Um, and I've, I've long, I've, I've told you, uh, uh, Ty and I had this fantasy about getting you and him together on one show. And we could just talk about stuff like that. We may have to do that. We're going to have to do that. You're stuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, here's another one. Um, this is from Adria in Toronto, Canada. And she said, hey, Chris, uh, love the work you're doing. Big fan of your projects. What are some areas you would like to see replicated by aquarists? And I think by areas, again, I don't know whether she meant uh, – ecological niches or geographical locations so do you have any either or you can answer it either way i guess uh it's very interesting there's there are so many places i think um some that go under the radar a little bit in the mm-hmm. main aquarium hobby or the biotope hobby are some of the killifish uh, not just the fancy ones, but the, right. uh, some of the Asian and uh, sort of Middle Eastern, should we say, and yeah. European uh, killifish. Some of them are absolutely beautiful. They are. Um, the Apocalypses and those kind of, is that, is that what you're thinking? The, the sort of forgotten ones or even Aphianus, like Mento or, or any of those yeah, kind of species? Yeah, like uh, Aphianus and uh, even... Is it pronounced Aphanius? I pronounced it wrong. Some people Uh, say Aphanius. Some people say Aphanius. That that, um, that killie. (laughs) Yeah, there's one. There's a fantastic genus. And then there's um, Valencia as well. Mm -hmm. Another great genus of fish. But um, in terms of geographic regions, um, I mean, I absolutely fell in love with uh, Kerala when I was there. And um, just the Western Ghats in, in general. Uh, yeah. India, it it's is underrepresented in the hobby, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you can, just to get a tiny glimpse, you can try to search my article on sea fish essentials. If you just go on Google and type uh, Chris Englezu um, uh, biotopes of uh, Kerala or something like that, it will come up. Mm-hmm. And um 
or biotopes of the Western Ghats. So I, th I think that the, the actual title was something along the lines of from mountains to mangroves or something mm -hmm. um, to represent my journey. But honestly, the diversity of fish species there and the beauty of the habitats and the and fishing is just really amazing. And, and and I agree with you. I think that's so underrepresented, you know, underrepresented in the hobby. And there, there are so many different diverse little habitats. That's a good one. Mm. There's something for yeah. everybody. But there's many more. I mean, the perfect example is uh, Australia. Mm -hmm. you know, like, go on Facebook. There's a there's a group Biotopes of Australia, and uh, it's run by a guy called Jason Solder, mm -hmm. and probably some others by now. But um. Or freshwater fishes of Australia, something like that. I can't remember. Yeah, I think I've seen. There, I know there's a rainbow fishes of Australia group too, but there's yeah, there's a few of those. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful places, and um, you can also follow a good friend of mine that uh, I met in the Amazon, actually, a guy called John Lenigan, mm -hmm. on uh, Facebook as well, and he he's from uh, Queensland. And uh, honestly, you, the, the, the more you see these places, the more you fall in love. It's just um, daring to be a little different, I think. I agree. And try something a little different. You know, there, there's so many different ecological niches that we can model that we aren't doing. And that's, that's incredible. Uh, I'll give you the final question and then we'll, let, we'll wrap this up and let you have your evening. Um, this is from Darren in New York City. Uh, he says... Hey, Chris, do you have a single favorite fish that you like to use in your biotope style aquariums? <laughs> and again, I know it depends on what biotope you're replicating, but I mean, if there's, if there's a fish that maybe, I think what he's saying is like again and again, is there one that you always sort of becomes your go-to fish that when you do a, say a South American, you know, a broadly South American theme or an Asian theme or something, is there one fish that you always find yourself, yeah, I want to include that one or a type of fish maybe? Yes. It's quite tricky, actually. That is a that is a tricky question because I I because of my uh, approach to biotopes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, is there a particular one? I I can't really pin down one particular fish species. I I think, but um, I I really enjoy creating biotopes from places I've seen and I've, I've had lots of instances of where I've um, created uh, Atabapo biotopes. Yep, that's your favorite. Um, one of one of your favorites, it? I know that. Favorite, yeah. One of my favorite places on Earth, um, let alone to create an aquarium based on it, but the diversity of fish species there, the diversity of habitats and, and how different it is to many other places it's just uh yeah it's really one of a kind sort of place a very special place so if i had to pin down maybe two or three species i could say a few, a few but i suppose we have to go with the cardinal tetra yeah um yeah. you know having seen them in uh all their best <laughs> yeah absolutely they they really are something special you, you almost um, can't go wrong with that fish, yeah. No, you really can't. And they, they do occur across quite a variety of um, habitats, shall we say. And so you can be a bit broad with some of their biotope designs. Um, but my favorite is definitely the, that shallow flooded forest 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, we have similar tastes. That's good. Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, you know, we're going to have to do another time because I know we, we can go on and on all night for you, but we're going to have to have you on again. I hope you don't mind doing that again. Yeah, um, my pleasure. Cool. And, and we'll talk about specific like habitats ideas. Maybe we'll talk about like ideas and how to execute, you know, a, a tank to represent some of these. That'd be kind of fun for people. We've never done a, uh, an actual talk where it's like strictly about how to replicate a such and such environment and talk about what fishes we'd use and what materials. And I think that could be a lot of fun uh, and you'd be the perfect guy to have on there. Um, I think Ty would also be very yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. We'll get you and Ty and um, um, maybe we'll even get Yvonne to come on because I know he's been wanting to be on too. So we'll have to, maybe we can have three of the top guys in the world talking about this. That'd be amazing. So we'll see if we can make that happen. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it would certainly be my pleasure. Oh, absolutely. And and Chris, again, uh, thank you so much for your time. I know we went way over what we said we were going to do, but I think uh, it's important to cover a lot of these topics and we're just scratching the surface. I and mean, hey, we have three years of catching up to do. So um, it's kind of kind of important. Uh, and uh, again, uh, is there any parting message you have for anybody, uh, for everybody out there that's listening? Any Anything you want to say or? Um, I... I feel as though I've said quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That is the most profound thing. I think I I just want to say that, you know, if anyone out there is interested in learning more about biotype aquariums or, or anything fish keeping related, you can always send me a message by email, just um, message info at cefishessentials.com. Um, I'm always, I might take a while to reply sometimes cause I'm quite busy here and there, but, um, I'll always try to get back to people if they have any questions on anything. And, um, yeah, I just encourage you all to just do your best to, uh, learn what you can about the fishes and their habitats. And, um, my, my hope is that we can m- move the, uh, aquarium industry and the fish keeping hobby forward to a place of, uh, uh, that, that is a bit more ethical for the fish yeah. and uh so i'll help anybody get to that point um if they want to that's fantastic and then that's something we could all we could all use a little more of so yeah. um that's a great way to end it and put a bow on all this and again chris thanks so much for your time tonight and um you know we really appreciate it and uh um i think uh there was a lot of great information for people there and a lot of really fun stuff. And I hope people again, check out CEFishessentials.com and freshwaterlifeproject.org. Um, both that Chris is intimately involved in, and those would be really, really interesting things for all of our readers and viewers or listeners to the, to the podcast uh, who are fans <laughs> of this type of aquarium. I know they're going to get a lot out of both of those, um, those sites. So thanks again for the time. And uh, we look forward to having you on again and, and, uh, Let's not make it another three years. Yeah, no, let's, let's not do that. But <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Thanks, uh, thanks very much, Scott. No problem. Have a great evening. We'll talk to you soon. And, okay. everybody, and everybody, thank you so much for listening to uh, the latest installment of The Tint. And we'll see you real soon. Bye-bye.